he would come down to my office every few days and say, okay, what's new? <laughs> and I remember there was always something new. It must be sort of addictive to find yourself with your brain buzzing like that. You must want to carry on like that forever. Lovely. Richard Thaler was our first ever guest on Nobel Prize Conversations, and what a wonderful way to start the series. This is an encore presentation of that Season 1, Episode 1. I very much hope you'll enjoy it, and that it will leave your mind buzzing. I'm stubborn, and I, I don't mind a fight. This is Richard Thaler, Economic Science Laureate. You're listening to Nobel Prize Conversations. I mean, obviously not a physical fight, but an intellectual fight. And when I was writing papers in the early days, I adopted the strategy of picking someone who I thought would hate this paper the most. And then write the paper with that person in mind as the reader. You just heard economic science laureate Richard Thaler. I'm Fanny Harjestam, the producer of Nobel Prize Conversations. Thaler has a list of life-changing blunders we make. It's called Dumb Stuff People Do. His research recognizes that people don't always make rational choices. For example, many people choose a career based on what courses they enjoy or succeed at in school. But this doesn't necessarily point you towards an occupation that will give you a lifetime of prosperity or satisfaction. Sound familiar? It's hard to make smart choices, and that is a profoundly human dilemma. To old-school economists, making irrational decisions is simply dumb. To behavioural economists, our choices are influenced by human psychology. Though controversial at first, Thaler's work has helped us to understand how people make choices in the real world. It has also given us tools to nudge people towards better decisions. These nudges were the subject of his deeply influential book. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. Together with his team, he brings Nobel laureates and other experts to stages around the world to tackle important issues like health, truth and intelligence. We call it the Nobel Prize Dialogue. He also has the unique job of phoning the new laureates each year to record short interviews, just moments after they've heard the news that they have been awarded the prize. This podcast series brought to you with support from Riksbanken, the Swedish central bank, is a chance to go deeper in these interviews. So now time for Richard Thaler and a conversation about nudges, sludges, dumb stuff and the connection between stubbornness and success. You've been very kind in replying to my invitations over the years, but I think actually the last time we spoke was when you sounded remarkably calm on that morning in October 2017, when you had just been woken up by the news. Uh, well, believe me, I was not calm. So, uh, it's well, um, that your voice belied. I, the, I the, think I, yeah, I was in a state of shock. So, um, I had regained some composure by that point. <laughs> so, 
Anyway, nice to speak to you now. Let's go way back. When did you realize that um, that human beings weren't thought about when you thought about the economy? When, when did it occur to you that it just wasn't enough to con consider everybody as a rational agent? Well, I must say I had some doubts when I was a graduate student. But, you know, the first kind of scientific, if you can call it that, scientific discovery was while I was working on my PhD thesis, which was um, on the value of a human life. So not the existential value, but um, I was interested in cost-benefit analysis. And if we make a highway safer and save 10 lives per year, how much is that worth to society? To society. And at that time, around 1970, the usual way of doing that was to calculate the foregone earnings of the victims. And notice that means that killing off old people like me is profitable for society <laughs> since we're Yep. Spending down rather than um, <laughs> yeah, you're you're a burden creating. on society, exactly. <laughs> right, um, but uh, so the approach I took was very neoclassical economics to ask how much you had to pay people in risky jobs. So people like miners and loggers and window washers on tall buildings and so mm -hmm. forth. Uh, and it was just a, an econometrics exercise. But in the process of doing that, I decided it might be interesting to ask people some questions. And so I asked two questions. The first was, you know, you're exposed to a rare disease and there's a one in a thousand chance you're going to die a quick and painless death sometime next week. We have one cure how much would you pay to get it? Hmm. Uh, so that was question one. Mm -hmm. You can think what your answer would be. Uh, then I asked a second question. The, the university hospital is doing some experiments on this disease. They need volunteers. All you'd have to do is walk into a room and expose yourself to a one in a thousand risk of getting this disease. There would no, be no cure available. How much would you have to be paid to participate in that experiment? Mm -hmm. And according to economic theory, the answers to those two questions should be approximately the same. And the answers I got were wildly different. <laughs> so this was a long time ago, but uh, people might say, oh, I'd pay $2,000 for that cure, but I wouldn't participate in that experiment for a million dollars. Mm -hmm. Many people would say, I wouldn't do it at any price, Yeah, which in and of itself is preposterous since we drive our cars and fly on airplanes and do all kinds of other risky activities. Crossing the street involves some risk. So, and we don't get paid a million dollars for that. <laughs> so that was one thing that that got me interested. Yeah, what an interest. And then I, I started what I called my list, a list of 
weird behavior, <laughs> dumb stuff people do. <laughs> that was sort of the beginning of my career as a misbehaving economist. Think about how people choose the subject that they're going to study in college. In many cases, they make that decision when they're in high school or in, in some countries, you're more or less forced to choose that subject when you apply to university. And most high school uh, students have no idea what they want to do with their lives or what it means to be an engineer or a doctor or uh, an economist or somebody who studies English literature. And so m many people end up studying the thing they most like to study, which is, is possibly the solution to some problem, like what courses will I enjoy most as a student? But it's certainly not necessarily the solution to what occupation would give me the most satisfaction over the next 50 years of my life. Well, and that's a really hard problem. Quite so. I mean, yeah, um, it's, it's basically an irrational decision, like I suppose most of the decisions that people make. They're based on, they're based on desires and a whole mixture, mix of emotions and needs, but they're not, right. they're not made in a calculating way most of the time. Yeah, and you know, if you think about it, this is just about the most important decision people ever make. Mm. It, yeah, that and who to marry. How did you make your decision? How did you decide what you were going to do at college? Well, I wasn't good enough in math to study physics, which is what my father had studied, and I took economics. I mean, it was the same silly way. Most, you know, mm. I enjoyed studying it and was reasonably good at it. That would have been a bad decision if I hadn't somehow stumbled on behavioral economics because I didn't didn't have the makings of a great economist. My thesis advisor famously said to a New York Times reporter that as a graduate student, they didn't expect much of me. <laughs> and I think that was a fair assessment because I wasn't that good at proving theorems. I wasn't that good at econometrics. I was probably better suited to being a psychologist than an economist. Hmm. I think if Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky hadn't come along uh, and gave me some hints, both in their work and then uh, personally when I got to know them. Uh, had they not come along, I think I would have probably not ended up as a professional economist. Uh, who knows what I would have done, but something else. I'm going to come on to them in one second, but let me just ask you, did you think you'd be making something of yourself when you were a graduate student? Did you feel that it was all going to work out? Well, I was not at all confident that I would have a successful career as an academic economist. I wasn't worried that I wouldn't think of something to do. <laughs> I remember as a graduate student, I was married and my wife was going to make curtains for our apartment in our first semester. And I told her, hold off, I might flunk out after the first semester. <laughs> so... 
I was cautious. <laughs> <laughs> Did the curtains get made in the end? Yeah, yeah. I am somehow managed to uh, get through the first year, so she made the curtains. I wrote a book called Misbehaving. Exactly. And, of course, the title of the book uh, has two meanings. One is the substance of the book is about the fact that economic agents don't behave the way economists think they should. Um, but the title also is meant to be a, a comment on the author. Look, I'm a troublemaker. I'm small, so it's not that I was ever beating anybody up physically, but I'm guessing that my teachers thought I was a bit of a pain. Apart from worrying about your grades, what did your, what did your parents think? You had two um, brothers. I guess there was a comparison. I had two brothers. I was the oldest. Uh, number two was more like my father and followed him down the path of becoming an actuary. The third one is a more artistic bent. And I would say we were, we were not and are not uh, particularly tight. Mm. When you were at school, a high school, were you a A-star student or were you a... No. No. I was easily distracted and mildly dyslexic. Uh, I mean, not in a way that prevented me from learning, but in a way that led me to make lots of careless errors. To this day, I'm a horrible speller. <laughs> Thank God for uh, autocorrect. If an English word ends in S-E or C-E, I'm about 60-40 to get it right. <laughs> that kind of carelessness gets you down from an A student to a B-plus student and that's kind of where I was. But, but is, it, it's just, I mean, you can't, one can't really make conclusions, but it's so interesting to think about how learning at high school is perhaps related or not related to developing the sort of alert mind you need to do in the end what you did and whether you're well prepared for it or whether, in fact, being a bit distracted from schoolwork and not totally precise is perhaps in some ways could be a better training. It's there's no answer to this, but it's just interesting. Yeah, to no. There's my father was so frustrated with my school performance in middle school that he sent me to a private all boys school, a day school hmm. that was more rigorous. And I think that the best thing about that education was that. The class sizes were small enough that we were required to write something every week. And so I think my writing skills improved. Though, you know, this goes back to my mild dyslexia. When I was in college, I would studiously avoid courses that had papers as a requirement. And the reason was that I found typing to be so painful. Hmm. I, I mean, I just couldn't type a page without making 20 mistakes. And this was back in the day where 
Uh, it was hard to correct, you know, yeah. yeah. Correcting was extremely painful. When I got my first computer, which was the year I went to visit Kahneman in 1984, I had this tiny little Macintosh. The, the best thing about it is that I could, I could now write at a keyboard. Mm. Uh, until then, I did all my writing on yellow pads. And fortunately, when I got a job, I then had typists. But when I was a student, <laughs> you don't have a typist. So what was it about the friendship that developed between you and Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky that was so right? Why did you get along so well? We just clicked personally. Danny Kahneman, uh, to this day, remain, remains my best friend. I will see him for dinner next week in New York, <laughs> and we probably talk once a week at least. And uh, Amos was a pure joy to be with. So wait, who are we talking about here? Daniel Kahneman is a psychologist who shared the 2002 prize in economic sciences for advancements in the field of behavioral economics. He has been described as one of the most influential economists in the world. And then Amos Tversky, he was also a psychologist and a longtime collaborator with Kahneman. He passed away in 1996. Thaler calls these two his psychology mentors, and in fact, Thaler's career started with them 40 years ago at Stanford University. Well, we were interested in the same thing, which is kind of mistakes people make. And I didn't really know anything about psychology, and they didn't know anything about economics. And I had learned that they were going to spend a year at Stanford. And I was a young assistant professor at the University of Rochester at the time and managed to scrounge up support to go spend that year at Stanford as well. We ended up that year with me teaching them economics and them teaching me psychology and... It all started in that year at Stanford. Must have been heady times. Wonderful. It was, yeah. I remember that year sort of having a new idea every day. My benefactor at the time, who generously put me on his grant, is an economist called Victor Fuchs, uh, sort of the godfather of health economics. There was a small office of the National Bureau of Economic Research at Stanford uh, that was located very near where Danny was visiting. And uh, Victor was acting as my Jewish mother. And he would come down to my office every few days and say, okay, what's new? <laughs> and I remember there was always something new because many of these things just nobody had really been thinking about before. So it was easy to have something new. It's not that I had solved something, but that I had something new to think about. So yeah, there were very heady times. Yeah. It, it, must be, it must be sort of addictive once you get into that state. How lucky to find yourself with your brain buzzing like that. You must want to carry on like that forever. Lovely. Yeah. 
It was during that year that I decided, okay, I'm going to make this my career. I'm not sure it will work, but it's so much fun that that's what I'm going to do. I didn't think that the University of Rochester was going to be a conducive place to do that. And so I looked for a job elsewhere and found a, was lucky to find a job at Cornell where they were maybe a little skeptical, but happy enough to have me doing this. And that turned out to be a very good place for me to be starting this, this line of work. You have an interest in exposing an area, getting to grips with it, but then not tidying up, but moving on. So uh, look, that plays to my skill set. There's always going to be somebody who can redo one of my papers more rigorously. And I'm happy to leave that for others. Uh, yeah, understood. The first guy who lands on the moon doesn't do much science, but um, there's and there's a lot left to be done. But, you know, he was the first time to, one to look around. I've been able to look around in a lot of places that uh, other people haven't been and report what I've found. And that's what I find to be fun. Hmm. So Danny Kahneman has, and this must be quoted to you all the time, described you as both a genius and lazy. <laughs> is, that, is that how you would describe yourself? Well, my loving wife would definitely support the lazy part. <laughs> and and dispute the genius part. I don't complain that he calls me lazy. What my complaint is that he says it's my best quality. And that's a bit harsh. He is my friend. So what does he mean by it? I can only be moved to get off my ass and work on something if I find it sufficiently interesting. Hmm and sufficiently important. So the arc of my research, in some ways, each paper was answering some question that typically was a question that was being raised by the skeptic. If it's not interesting and, and if it doesn't make a real point, then I'll leave it to somebody else to do. Yes. When I'm talking to students or my younger colleagues, somebody will come and talk to me about with a draft of a paper they've done recently. The most frequent comment I will make is, how can we make this paper more important? Hmm. So there are other people that will tell them, no, there's better econometrics method or there's a better research design. I, I leave that to other people. But, you know, are you asking the right question? Is there a more interesting question to ask? And why, if your finding is right, why should anybody care about it? That's the message I'm always trying to convey to, to the kids. Sure. Yeah. In a way, it's not getting distracted by the noise, but that's a rude way to describe a lot of work. But and having an activation energy that only that is high enough that you really only, as you say, only address the 
the questions that are worthwhile. Difficult thing to learn. Right. Yeah. I mean, picking the right problem as opposed to executing the problem perfectly. Mm. Obviously, I'm better at the first than the second. Uh, as a result, I, I try to help people think about their research along those lines. Of course, this is anything but a mainstream approach to research. Awarding Richard Thaler the economics prize was actually quite controversial. For decades, there has been a battle between two schools of economic thought, between the behavioral economics Thaler practices and what is called rationalist economics. The latter uses traditional economic theory and models inhabited by fictional creatures to explain how we act as humans. And it assumes that we are rational beings. Professor Thaler would beg to differ. Have you ever found it difficult to keep it going, keep your own research line going, keep your own belief in your methods in the, under the onslaught of other people's criticisms? I'm stubborn. I don't mind a fight. Hmm. I mean, obviously not a physical fight, but an intellectual fight. And when I was writing papers in the early days, I adopted the strategy of picking someone who I thought would hate this paper the most and then write the paper with that person in mind as the reader. That's a good idea. It's sort of brave, though. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think at least the first three objections that they would have would have been dealt with. Mm. I'm always telling graduate students, my research advice is write about the world, not about the literature. Many graduate students spend too much time reading and too little time thinking. The result of that can be that they end up doing research that is in small incremental steps based on what we now know. So there's a paper that's done A, B, and C, but there's not one that's done A, B, C, and D. So, okay, there's an opportunity. You know, I think that's a uh, that's a safe research path. It's more fun to think about a topic that nobody's written about before. Uh, I, it may be my short attention span, but I, I've never really written more than one or two papers on the same topic. <laughs> Obviously, they've all had a theme, but uh, they've ranged from, you know, I have a whole series of papers in finance, but they're all different. And then three papers of that use game shows and a, a paper about the National Football League and the way they pick players. And that, that's just been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't want to write the 10th paper on the National Football League draft, but uh, writing the first one was, was a lot of fun. Your nudge approach has become so universally applied now or is becoming so universally applied. And your hope is that it will be used to push people towards good behavior, if you like, sensible behavior, things that are good for the society. Your work is having an influence on the way we live. Do you think that is the role of The Economist, to, to change the way that people live? Uh, it's certainly not the role of every economist. You know, we started writing these papers and we we coined this term libertarian paternalism. 
which we knew was an obnoxious term and sounds like an oxymoron. But we thought the term made perfect sense. Some background here. In 2008, Thaler co-authored the groundbreaking book Nudge together with Cass Sunstein. In it, they looked at why people tend to make bad or irrational choices and offered tools to help people to make better decisions. It has been hugely influential in shaping economic policies around the world. For example, it has been used to help nudge people into saving for their pensions and making other kinds of long-term plans that don't come naturally to most people. The paternalistic part is we were trying to design policies that we thought would make people better off. And the libertarian part was that we set ground rules for ourselves that those policies would not require anyone to do anything. We thought of this as, you know, the middle ground, the middle way, or a middle way. And God knows that we need middle ways more than ever. So it's encouraging to me that that people are are getting <clears throat> excited about this. Mm. Somebody counted up that there were 200 or more so-called nudge units, as these things are inevitably called. Most of what they're doing is pretty unobjectionable, I think. is ma- Making life easier for people. Yeah. I was going to ask that, actually. Are you aware of anybody using your work in what you would consider to be very much the wrong direction? Or are people obviously most— Well, certainly the tools that we use have been used for thousands of years. And companies use some of the same methods— for in ways that I don't approve of. And in fact, I've coined a term for evil nudges, which is sludge. (laughs) You know, the theme of nudges make it easy to do the right thing. And sludge is the gunky stuff that mucks things up. So here's an example. When Misbehaving was published, the first review appeared in a London newspaper. And my editor excitedly sent me an email with a link saying, oh, your first review is out. And I clicked on it and I ran into a paywall. There was an offer there. I could have a one-month trial for one pound. So I'm thinking, well, certainly I'm willing to pay a pound to read the first review of my book. I might regret it later, but curiosity is worth a pound. But then, uh, you know, I did write that other book. So I read a little bit of the fine print. I realized that the one-month trial, in order to quit, you had to give two weeks notice. So it's actually just a two-week trial. Mm. And to quit, you couldn't do it online. You had to call. (laughs) You had to call London, not on a toll-free line, during London business hours. Now, I knew that for me, this was going to be a lifetime subscription because one of the other things they're doing is automatically renewing you. 
You have to give them a credit card for that one pound. In Nudge, we make jokes about many of the lifetime subscriptions that Cass has. So I called my editor and said, you subscribe because you'll, you're together enough to unsubscribe. <laughs> so that's sludge. Yep. My ground rules for private sector nudging, two of them are, you should genuinely think that the direction you're nudging them is in the consumer's best interest, not merely profit-making. And second, it should be as easy to get out as it was to get in. Uh, Cass and I are thinking and writing about sludge as the evil frontier. Yes, it wouldn't, wouldn't it be a dream if, it, if, if they adopted your guidelines? Uh, the next time I see you, if you want, we can uh, have a drink and go through and systematically unsubscribe to some of your publications. It sounds like the, the, uh, the combined kind of lack of uh, energy and competence in, in form filling would, would not get us very far, but we could try and the drink would be nice for sure. <laughs> the, and the drink would make sure we weren't suffering too bad. No, exactly. Okay. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Adam. Always a pleasure to talk to you. It's been excellent. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. This podcast was produced by Phil Tinterland for Nobel Media. The host was Adam Smith, and the producer was me, Fanny Harjestam. Music by Epidemic Sound. Make sure to visit the official website, nobelprize.org, for more in-depth content on the laureate's awarded work. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 